Miss Yarrow without mercy. Greetings, heathens. Welcome to Hail Satan. This is the podcast exploring Satanism, culture, and life in general through the eyes of modern Satanists. I'm going to be your host today. My name is Joseph Rose. I'm a member of the Satanic Temple and founder of Satanic Delco. Today on the show, I'm going to present you with a chat I had recently with Mr. W. James McNaughton, who is the attorney that has represented the Satanic Temple in its high-profile abortion cases. Before we get to that, we're going to do some of the usual things here. I've got a few new patrons that have joined along with us. We've got Jen, JP, Danielle, Victoria, and Kelly. Thank you all very much. I love and appreciate that you are willing to support my efforts here. It's really nice, and you guys are pretty much the best. So thank you so much. We're going to do a little bit of listener mail, if that's cool. I'm going to do three of them today. How about that? We've got one from Mark. I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, but last year I was disfellowshipped because I asked too many questions that they weren't able to give a straight answer to. Consequently, my family and friends no longer associated with me, and I was disowned as a son and brother. The last thing my father said to me was that, I made Satan very happy. So, I started looking into Satanism. Before I started research, I sat down and made a list of some moral codes and rules that I want to live by. First, I made my way into the Church of Satan and instantly dropped it for obvious reasons. But then I heard about the Satanic Temple and found your podcast. I've been binging it all day at work and so far agree with everything I've heard. I really enjoy what I'm learning and looking forward to more. I appreciate your podcast. Mark. Uh, first, thank you very much for the kind words. And I have to say, I'm really sorry that you've had to deal with that type of reaction from your family and friends. I hear far too many stories that are similar to that, and honestly, it's just so frustrating. It's hard to believe that people would really act that way, but here we are again. I hope that somehow, before too long, those people will come to their senses and reach out to you with some sort of sincere apologies. I guess only time will tell, but good luck to you, Mark. We've got one from Nikki. I recently found your podcast and completely fell in love. I'm a 15-year-old who recently moved to Texas and plan to get in contact with my local chapter. I've been contemplating joining for a long time, but your podcast has verified to me that this is where I belong. I'm grateful that I found a group of people who have common sense and who have the same perspectives and opinions as me. I've been a non-theist for about eight years and always followed the seven tenets without having the knowledge of Satanism. I would love to contribute as much as possible to these podcasts and or the Satanic Temple, but there's only so much a 15-year-old can do. Good luck with your podcasts, and I love the community you're building. Thank you very much, Nikki. That's really nice. I suppose in some ways, there's only so much a 15-year-old can do, but your main focus should probably be on educating yourself, figuring out what is important to you, and just surrounding yourself with supportive people. And I hope you find all of that. 
And we've got one last one from Sonia. I always wonder if I'm saying it right, but I think I am. Sonia. I love and live by the seven tenets and enjoy the symbolism of Baphomet and the way modern Satanists and the Satanic Temple handles issues I can really get behind. However, I haven't become more involved within the community because I don't consider myself an atheist. I'll elaborate here and try to keep it short. I do a lot of research into the occult, energy work, worldly religious studies, etc. And though I don't believe there is some God out there controlling the universe, I have a difficult time believing that gods, goddesses, deities have never existed. However, I believe if they did exist, it may not be the way in which we think or understand in the modern day. My predicament is that I would like to be a part and be able to call myself a Satanist, but I feel like that would make me a bit of a hypocrite even though I don't personally believe in a present godly figure. I have worked with spirits and energy several times in my lifetime, and although it may sound a bit crazy, these were times where there was absolutely no other explanation, scientific or otherwise, that could debunk the things I've witnessed. I would greatly appreciate your thoughts on this. Can I still call myself a Satanist even if I'm not a hardcore atheist? Thank you for your time and hard work. Hail Satan. Okay, Sonia, there is a lot here. Um, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. My views and opinions are simply that. I am just one man speaking for myself here. I'm going to take a couple of your statements and focus on those first. You said, I have a difficult time believing that gods, goddesses, deities have never existed. Now, on the face of it, you're simply describing your own feelings in relation to the wild, perhaps infinite, shocking reality of what we know about our world. Our world meaning the vastness of space and the unfathomable scale and complexity of everything in it. If someone were to ask you, how did all of that come to be, and how does it all work? There's only one honest, accurate answer to that question, and that answer is simply, I don't know. And that answer is the one that Christianity and perhaps many religions fail to acknowledge. When a definitive answer for something isn't available, religions and their followers feel the need to give an answer anyway. They say some version of, God works in mysterious ways. Of course, none of them, or anyone, anywhere, has anything remotely close to proof of this. People simply exchange, I don't know, for God, or gods, goddesses, deities. We've never actually been given any good reason to believe that they exist or existed. It comes from the fact that we live in a time when science is so fucking cool and advanced, we take for granted the amazing discoveries and abilities that we have. Because of that, it feels like we should surely have all of the answers by now, but we don't. And I don't know is uncomfortable. It feels like a shortcoming. We all like to know. We want answers. We want explanations, and we want them right fucking now. If it takes longer than a half-assed Google search, well then fuck it. It must be God. You went on to say, there were times where there was absolutely 
no other explanation, scientific or otherwise, that could debunk the things I've witnessed. Now that is a very intense statement. All of the amazing, cutting-edge science that we have nowadays is pushed forward by amazing people who you would be hard-pressed to get to proclaim many things absolutely. When you say it's an absolute, I would have to assume that many years were spent with the brightest minds on earth examining it all with an intense scrutiny, using the most advanced tools and applying the scientific method while challenging one another all along the way to finally come to this rare absolute conclusion. Because all throughout human history, people have believed in a great many things absolutely. They've believed them as deeply as a person can believe. And then, eventually, it turns out that those things weren't absolute fact after all. So, if I wanted to be a real wise-ass, which I would never do, (laughs) I would ask you to cite some of the extensive boundary-pushing research that has been done concerning these things that you've witnessed. At the end of the day, if someone were to ask you to explain the cause of those experiences, I would have to bet that the amount of evidence you have can only lead to one possible honest answer, and that would be, I don't know. As for your basic question about if you can call yourself a Satanist, and again, this is my personal opinion and interpretation, if you feel genuinely aligned with the seven tenets and you can appreciate or enjoy the way we use the metaphor of Satan, then absolutely, you should feel free to call yourself a Satanist. All of that other stuff feels like the path of critical thinking without having reached a final conclusion. You find some things hard to believe. I find some things fucking hard to believe, too. The world is vast and crazy. I can hardly wrap my mind around any small percentage of it. If I had one tiny piece of advice, it would simply be to lean into the idea of not knowing. Allow yourself to be astonished and bewildered by it all. And thank you very much for that interesting question, Sonia. I appreciate that. If you guys could take one moment and visit HailSatanPodcast.com, you'll find links to all of our social media platforms. I would love it if you'd link up with us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. There's a form on the website to drop an email, which obviously I strongly encourage you to do. I love getting your questions and feedback and suggestions for the show. And of course, there's a link to our cool Patreon channel where you'll get some bonus content. It's the most direct way to support the show if you do enjoy it at all. And it will also give you the ability to join up with everybody over at Satanic Delco and get into some of our fun business over there. So if you'd like, HailSatanPodcast.com is the place to be. Now that all that is out of the way, let's get into the interview I did with James McNaughton. Our guest today is W. James McNaughton. He is the attorney who has represented both Mary Doe and Judy Doe in two highly publicized abortion cases involving the Satanic Temple. Welcome to the show, James. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. I started reading a bit about just the updates to some of the Satanic Temple's legal cases, 
And one thing led to another, and I found myself in a rabbit hole <laughs> that I hadn't seen in quite a while uh, getting into these abortion cases. And uh, I thought for sure I'd want to get some of your insight as I, as I really stumbled into it kind of by accident. It was fascinating. It's a very interesting topic on, a, on many different levels. Before you were ever contacted to work for them, were you aware of the Satanic Temple? Nope. Not at all? Nope. Once you got to know a bit about the organization, what were your impressions? Um, I support them. I, I, I myself am, am not a Satanist. I happen to be a, a Presbyterian. But the, the principles uh, I agree with. And as I got into the sort of the nitty gritty of, of what their belief structure is, I supported what, what particularly resonated with me was that I've always regarded the um, Roe versus Wade, the sort of the seminal U.S. Supreme Court decision, as raising very profound questions of law under the religion clauses of the First Amendment. So it really it was a it was a it was a good fit with my own personal philosophical and legal beliefs. When you were presented with their original case involving Mary Doe, did you have any reservations about taking it? Uh, yeah. I mean, I gave it some thought. One of the, one of the thoughts that crossed my mind is, am I doing the devil's work? Mm. And I don't, I don't believe in a Satan per se. I don't, I don't believe in a devil per se. Um, on the other hand, I wanted some, I wanted, I wanted to, to consider and address the question whether I was lending my efforts to something that was evil. And um, that led to a, a lengthy conversation with a good friend of mine who's a, who's a pastor in a Presbyterian church on the nature of good, evil, and, and Satan. And uh, I came to the conclusion that I was, by taking on these cases, I was not doing evil. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. As a man of faith, I guess it's fair to say that would be a a reasonable consideration, certainly at first. <laughs> yeah. Um, as an attorney with years of experience on, I assume, many different types of cases, how confident were you going in that that first case would go your way? Not very. You know, there are, in almost every case, civil, criminal, constitutional, there are multiple agendas going on. One of them is the legal argument, the pure legal argument. On the pure legal argument, it was a winner. On the political argument, it was a loser. And uh, ultimately, it was the political argument that prevailed. So uh, the Mary Doe case came first. Correct me if I get any of this wrong. I'll try and walk us through the basics of the case very quickly. She goes to a Planned Parenthood to get an abortion and the Planned Parenthood is acting under the laws of the state of Missouri. When she arrives, she runs into three primary issues, as far as I can tell. First, she has to check a box on a form acknowledging that she's been given the state's informed consent booklet. Inside that booklet, amongst other things, in bold letters, is the phrase, the life of each human being begins at conception— Abortion will terminate the life of a separate, unique, living human being. That was the first issue. 
Issue number two was that they require a three-day waiting period between that first visit and when she can get her abortion. And then issue number three is that she was offered an ultrasound. And we'll dig into each of those, but does that sound about right? Actually, she was, at the time, she was required to get the ultrasound. And and that's how Planned Parenthood interpreted the, the state's law. Um, the, the attorney general for the state of Missouri backed off of that uh, requirement at oral argument before the Missouri Supreme Court and just said she needed simply to be offered the opportunity as opposed to actually get an ultrasound. Gotcha. Okay. We'll go through these a bit. There was, I guess, the first thing she was probably faced with was the the booklet. The law requires simply that the booklet be presented to the patient? Mm, requires that it be presented to the patient and that she certify receipt of the booklet. So it's a right. cert- it's 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 a certification requirement. Gotcha. Was the issue related to that booklet all about that specific phrase about life begins at conception, or is it the act of receiving the booklet at all, the part that was challenged? Well, the the, the booklet itself uh, contains four-color drawings of the progression of a pregnancy from conception to birth in two-week increments, right. along with an explanation. So, so, what, so the booklet does more than simply inform a woman about what the nuts and bolts are of the surgical procedure she's about to have. The booklet actively promotes the proposition that a human life begins at conception. So if you look at the drawings, there are very detailed renditions of the, of the face, of the fingers, the toes, and um, the umbilical cord is sort of this vague wavy line in the background. Right. But that's the, the fundamental, from a legal perspective, the, the, the point of the certification was that as a condition for getting medical services, she had to acknowledge receipt of the state's religious proposition right. that a human life begins at conception. That informed consent booklet was prepared by the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services. Is there any expectation for that group to present the scientific evidence used to determine that statement of when life begins? No. There's there's never any <laughs> sort of requirements placed upon them? No. Really? No. And, you know, that was... That was one of our legal arguments. One of our legal arguments was, you know, look, if you're if you're going to start presenting a woman, a pregnant woman with the state's view of when a, a human life begins, a concept, when a human life comes into existence, then in fairness, if your if your goal is truly to get informed consent based on all the facts, evidence and opinions and arguments to be had, you would present the alternative points of view, which obviously they did not. Right. So really, the, the I mean, informed consent is a, is a misnomer. It's propaganda is what it is and has been used as such uh, ever since the, the concept worked its way into the law. And so after that bit, she was faced with the reality of this waiting period. Is there any official explanation out there as to what the actual purpose of the waiting period is? Contemplation. 
that's the purpose. That's the that the the the, the waiting period was given constitutional uh, legitimacy in the in the in the Casey case, and and the and the rationale was that the state had a uh, the state has a, a legitimate interest in seeing live childbirth, seeing the seeing the the completion of the from conception to childbirth. The state has an interest in that topic, and that the, and that the point of having her uh, have a contemplation period was that she would give consideration to the severity of the of the action that she was taking. Um, our response to that was that that a it's paternalistic. But most importantly, in her case, it's pointless. She'd already made up her mind. Right. She didn't need no stinking three days and time out to think about it. Is it generally <laughs> accepted that the waiting period exists in part to assist women who may be coerced in some way into getting the abortion? No, my view, the, the waiting period is pure propaganda. Uh, there, there, there have been no, I, I, I am unaware of any medical studies uh, that have shown that the waiting period actually enhances the medical outcome for the woman and or the child. Are you able to articulate how that waiting period violated the women's religious freedoms in relation to the tenets of the Satanic Temple? Um, if that was part of the argument, exactly. That was that was part of the argument. Yep. I mean, the, the the one of the one of the tenets of the Satanic Temple is that the woman controls her own body. And makes her own decisions about the condition and the medical treatment for her own body. And that an abortion procedure is medical treatment. And that because it is medical treatment, she has the right to decide for herself the condition and timing under which she gets the medical treatment. There are no waiting periods for the removal of an appendix or elective surgery or having a root canal or anything like that. None. There's, so if you decide to do it, the, the whole point, the, 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 the legal argument we made was that the whole point of the, of the waiting period was to induce shame and to induce doubt. And in effect, that is, that is a pejorative, they're casting aspersions upon her religious beliefs. And in point of fact, that, when I say it's propaganda, that's, it's exactly what I mean. It, it, you know, it, said, it basically says, you bad girl. You bad girl for having an abortion. Go sit and time out for a day or three days. Yeah, I guess maybe it's an assumption. Maybe, maybe it's beyond an assumption at this point is that so many of those policies stem from a Christian belief and then they become policy in the state. Well, that's an interesting point because it's certainly not part of my Christian belief. And the, and the, uh, it is the it is the belief of evangelical some evangelical Christians, and it is the belief of the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah, I guess um, specifically more Catholic. Yeah. yeah, and the and that and that it has been a it has been highly politicized, highly politicized um, to the point of being, you know, a, poli- a, a, a political tenet, as it were, and it's part of part of, in my view, a, a, a larger agenda by some nationalist Christians to try to exert uh, political power to recraft, recraft the, the American experience and the, and the American life in the mold of, of evangelical Christianism, Christianity. The satanic tenets at play here in these cases, I think, are number three, 
which is one's body is inviolable, subject to one's own will alone, and tenet number five, which is beliefs should conform to one's best scientific understanding of the world. One should take care never to distort scientific facts to fit one's beliefs. To satisfy the patient's adherence to those tenets, particularly number three, would there need to be an absolute 100% literal interpretation of that at the expense of any policies that an organization may have in place for any of their own reasons? Well, it's, it's always a balancing test. Okay. Your rights, uh, you have your rights. I have my rights. Okay. And the, you know, the classic case is your right to swing your arm ends where my nose begins. Right. <laughs> okay. And, and the and and so you would have to look at what what the organization is what what you know what it is that's that it's trying to accomplish what what its what its legitimacy is you know that we we did not challenge the proposition that the state has a legitimate interest in seeing live childbirths i uh, that's a that's a that's a that's a fight for a different day i think that's Personally, I think that I find that very scary. I think that's a two-edged sword. Um, if you if you cede to the state the authority or the the ability to promote child child live live childbirths, you also cede to the state the authority to discourage live childbirths. That's kind of a chilling thought, but that's you know from a from a legal perspective, that's that's what's in play. Um, so you know to answer your to answer your question. I have to give you the, the loyally response of it depends. Right. Fair enough. We mentioned it earlier. There, there's been a bit of discussion. I don't know if there was confusion at one point. It seemed like there was confusion about whether or not the ultrasound was required for the patient to get an abortion or if the facility was just required to offer it. It seems like the law only states that they have to offer it but Planned Parenthood employees perhaps interpret it differently, you said? The, the conventional wisdom, if you want to call it that, in Missouri was you had to have an ultrasound. Mm. You have to remember that, that the Planned Parenthood clinic that, that gave her her abortion is the only place in the state of Missouri where you can get an abortion. Right. And that they operate in a, an extremely hostile political environment. There are people on the street corner literally every day across the street from, from Planned Parenthood in St. Louis, telling and screaming at the women who are going in that they are murderers. So um, I think, I, I, I do not know for a fact what the, what the thinking was at Planned Parenthood. I would not be surprised if they said, you know, on the, in the exercise of caution, we're just going to require it. Right. Is it understood now that, I guess, if we're just going by the book, the law only requires that it be offered? I would, uh, based on what the attorney general said at the state of in in front of the Missouri Supreme Court, I would say yes. I, I do not know what the actual practice is now in Missouri on that on that subject. Was there any specific discussion about the patient being required to actually view or listen to the fetus as opposed to just having it done without her looking? She was offered the opportunity. Yeah, now it's coming into now. My, it, my recollection now is that the offering of the ultrasound was not was interpreted by the by Planned Parenthood not as simply the procedure itself, 
but the result of the procedure. Okay. Right. So you had to have, you had to have an ultrasound and then be offered the opportunity to see the, the ultrasound image of the fetus. Right. Okay. Um, and in, and in uh, Mary Doe's case, she, she declined, but she felt, she felt great guilt and shame in doing so. And that, you know, that's the, that's really kind of the nub of it. That's really kind of the heart of it is because if it's a difficult enough decision as it is for any woman to have an abortion, but the, the, the role of the state, I think, in that process should be provide competent medical care. Yeah. Period. You know, don't don't be inserting yourself into that decision making process. As I dug a little more into this and, and was learning more about why some of these practices are in place and, and what their purpose is, the ultrasound really was the most interesting part, I guess, because it, it seems to me, you know, well, first of all, we know there are 18 states, including Missouri, that ban abortions once the fetus reaches the point of uh, viability, which doesn't have an absolute scientific definition. It varies, but it's typically at around 24 through 28 weeks. And it was argued that Planned Parenthood uses the ultrasound to determine the gestational age of the fetus. So based on all that, do you think it's reasonable, based on our best scientific understanding, to use an ultrasound before an abortion? Completely separate from the idea of the patient looking at it. Well, here's the here's the problem. Okay, is that you don't you don't get into the the gestational if if the if the patient presents with I've been I, I think I'm 20 weeks pregnant. Okay. Mm-hmm that number you start counting from the last period, the last menstrual cycle. And if a, if, if a woman says, I don't know, I've never had a period or it's been, uh, been six months or it's, you know, I have no idea. I would not be offended by a physician who said, you know, I, to protect myself, I really would like to have an ultrasound so that I can make a, a good medical judgment on viability. Um, on the other hand, if the, if the woman, in, as, as in Mary Doe's case, presents with a very specific uh, counting point for, for how many weeks she was pregnant, I think she was like 10 at the time, 10, 12, I don't see why the physician can't take her at her word and say, you know, at this point, getting a, uh, an ultrasound is just, it serves no medical purpose. Right. Now, that's sort of the place where I started. If it isn't obvious already, I do identify as a Satanist. So I start by default sort of on board. I hear the Satanic temple's got a, a thing, and my mind goes to, yeah, they, they must be, you know, <laughs> doing the right thing here. And, and I think that they are, but I think this ultrasound issue got more and more interesting the more I learned. If it's okay with you, uh, can I bring up a couple of things I found? Sure. And maybe you can tell me if any of this had come across your path during any of this. There were basically three things that I found that were agreed upon on pretty much every source that I looked at as for reasons for an ultrasound to be performed before an abortion. And one was to confirm viability. And at first, my thought was, 
well, it doesn't really matter if it's viable because she's already decided to get an abortion. But what I learned is that a viable pregnancy just means that the baby has a heartbeat, that it's still happening in there. And mm, according yeah. to the Mayo Clinic, 20% of known pregnancies end in miscarriage. So if the ultrasound doesn't detect a heartbeat, then the patient doesn't need to endure the health risks that come with having an abortion. Well, the, the, the flaw in your, in your thinking from the legal perspective is that viability is, from the legal perspective, is defined as the ability of the fetus to survive outside the womb. Okay. Even, if it, even, with, even with medical intervention. So, and, and everyone agrees that, that the earliest that date is, is 22, 23 weeks. Right. Okay. Uh, the second one was to simply determine how far along the pregnancy is, which we mentioned. And I think that was important because certain abortion procedures are appropriate for certain stages versus others. And I guess that would be a case of maybe taking her at her best word that she would. No, that would, that would, that would be a case of the physician exercising his best, his or her best medical judgment. I don't, we don't, uh, the, the satanic temple does not find that offensive. And the third one that I ran into a bunch was confirming that the fetus is in the uterus. An ectopic pregnancy occurs when the egg implants somewhere other than the uterus, which could be in the fallopian tube or inside the ovary, abdominal cavity, etc. cetera. Uh, and you will get a positive pregnancy test result, but only an ultrasound can determine an ectopic pregnancy, which is not a viable pregnancy. So if that patient were to go through and have the abortion procedure with an ectopic pregnancy, the pregnancy would still continue and the baby will continue to grow and pose health risks to the patient. Yeah, again, I, I, the satanic temple, the satanic tenants would have, would leave that, the, the use of the ultrasound to the discretion of the physician who would presume, presumably administer it based on his or her best medical judgment. So was there an issue with the ultrasound on the level of violating this patient's religious rights? Or was that? No, 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 no. It, it was not the ultrasound per se. Okay. okay? It, it was, if, if you've read the papers, the, the way that I, that I framed the argument was I called the, um, the, the proposition that a human life begins at conception, the Missouri tenant. Right. And that the and that the the aspects of the procedure that reinforced the tenant, I described as the Missouri lectionary. Yes, uh, the Presbyterian in me just came out. What can I say? <laughs> sure. Um, and um, and so the 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 our uh, my presentation was based on not so much the the impediment that the abortion that the ultrasound presented to implementing her decision so much as that in the, in the context in which it was administered, it was part of an overall game plan to impress upon Mary Doe that she was killing her baby. Mm -hmm. So after that case sort of ran its course, or maybe it was still in progress, the Judy Doe case came up. On the surface, the two seemed fairly similar with one exception being that Judy's case was filed while she was pregnant while Mary was not in her case. Other than that, was there anything significantly different about the circumstances of the events or the legal approach to the two cases? 
Well, the fact patterns were the same. The, the Mary Doe case was filed initially in state court, and, it was, and, the, and the legal challenge was based solely on the state of Missouri's Restoration of Religious Freedom Act, which, gives, which is a, um, a, a statutory right for religious freedom. And in the course of, and, and I, I give you, I'll tell you a story about how I got involved in all this. Sure. Um, the um, one of the principles of the Satanic Temple is a is a business client of mine, and uh, we had we had dinner one night, and and he was talking to me about bodily integrity and his interest in um, corporal punishment, and we talked about whether a, a student could could claim a religious right to the protection of their bodily integrity as a religious proposition to uh, avoid corporal punishment. And when the Hobby Lobby case came down, that was the case where the U.S. Supreme Court said that under the Federal Restoration of Religious Freedom Act, Hobby Lobby did not have to provide uh, abortifacients to its uh, employees. He called me up and he said, you know, we talked about whether that same principle would apply to the satanic temple. I mean, if the if Hobby Lobby doesn't have to buy buy birth control for its employees based on on its religious beliefs, uh, would not the same legal you know sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander? Yeah. We started with he, I was asked to write a, a letter that a woman could take into an abortion clinic and say, "I believe in the satanic temples, and I don't need your stinking." informed consent letter and I don't need your, I don't need your uh, waiting period and my, my abortion today, please. And uh, that was an, that was an interesting proposition when I wrote it, because when, when I put pen to paper or these days, when I type into my computer, I'm always mindful of who's my audience. Right. I had numerous audiences there. I, when, when I'm writing those kinds of letters, I tend to think of them as exhibits to complaints and legal actions. What will they look like to a court? But I also, thought about what they would look like to the woman, what they would look like to the, to the doctors. And anyway, the, I wrote the letter, actually wrote several of them. And they sat in the can and I got, called me up in, I think, March the following year and said, we're going we're gonna to publish the letters on the webpage. You might get some calls from the press. Mm. And I said, okay, oh, okay. And so they published, they, they published the, the newsletters. They started talking to people who work for Jezebel and, I started getting phone calls by three in the afternoon. I was talking to ABC news yeah. and it just, it just caught fire Yeah, uh, to the point where uh, two days later, my daughter and her and her then fiance came to visit us and they came in and this is all they were talking about was the letter. <laughs> I looked at my wife and she looked at me and I said, I wrote the letter. <laughs> Dad. <laughs> was that, was that the first time something like that had happened? Uh, of that nature, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's not. It's not the first time I've done things where my my daughters have looked at me and go, "Dad." <laughs> sure. Um, but but then uh, Judy Doe or Mary Doe stepped forward and said, "I'll sign the letter." And uh, the Satanic Temple scrambled around and tried to get the uh, you know the usual the usual uh, suspects to uh, to defend her. Nobody was going to do it, and I said, "I'll do it." But you know, I'm a I'm a sole practicing attorney. You're going to have to pay me. Yeah. And then uh, they did. Yeah. The, AC, the ACLU turned it down. They did not want to they did not want to deal with it because it was in Missouri. They regarded Missouri as an unfavorable battleground state for litigating abortion issues. And, you know, in retrospect, that was a, that was a, 
I understand that call. So yeah. when we when when I took the case, we I basically scrambled around about a week through together the complaint was based solely on the, the state RIFRA. Uh, but as I started really digging into it, I realized that there were a lot of federal constitutional issues that I did not want to expose for litigation in the state court. And so after she had her abortion, I filed a second action with her as the plaintiff and the Satanic Temple as a plaintiff and raised the, the constitutional issues. That case got dismissed and went up to the Eighth Circuit. And also the dismissal was upheld on the grounds of rightness. The concept that you have to have in order to get federal court jurisdiction, you have to have an injury in fact. And the, and the whole, all of the, the constitutional rights that uh, attach to reproduction issues apply. For, in the case of abortion, you have to be pregnant. If you're not pregnant, the rights don't come into, into play. And so since she'd already had the abortion, they said it's moot. We're not going to deal with it. So when Judy Doe came along, uh, there was the opportunity to present the same arguments again, but this time in the context of ripeness. And so um, the second case was, it was legally different than Mary Doe because Mary Doe really went to the, all the way up to the Missouri Supreme Court solely on the state statutory issue, not the federal constitutional issues. The, the Judy Doe case raised the federal constitutional issues. And uh, to make it, I don't know how deep, did you read the, the, the Eighth Circuit's opinion on that case? I did. I, I found so many documents in random order and all over the place. I was trying so hard to find one source where I could get all this, and I just couldn't find that. So it was a little confusing, but I, I think I managed to sort it all out. Well, the, the complaint in, in, uh, in, the, in the Judy Doe case was premised on the religion clauses. The, the religion clauses have two aspects. There's the establishment of religion and the free exercise aspect of religion. And um, one of the and, and the the constitutional analysis for abortion is the Casey case. Yes. And the Casey case has as, a, as its core underpinning that a woman has a right within her zone of conscience to decide whether to get an abortion. And my argument was that that zone of conscience is protected by, among other things, the religion clauses of the United States. And the Eighth Circuit refused to entertain that proposition because I, I failed to specifically allege the application of Casey in the case. Yeah, that was actually the next thing I was going to ask about. When these came to a close, all of the information that most of us were getting was just coming from the Satanic Temple in the form of their monthly newsletters and, and things like that on their website. And a lot of focus was put on the undue burden aspect after the process had already gotten underway. Was there a reason that the undue burden aspect of it wasn't stated as part of the original claim? It was. It was. It was, it was specifically alleged in the complaint. Was there an issue with that being missing from part of it? It seemed like they didn't want to accept an undue burden claim later in the process. Oh, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't want to deal with the undue burden claim at all. Mm. And the reason they didn't want to deal with the undue burden claim at all was because, and I circle back to what I said in the at the beginning, 
there are two agendas going on in any lawsuit. There is the legal agenda and there is the political agenda. And if you apply the legal agenda, there is, in my view, no question, no question that the Missouri tenants impose an undue burden on a woman getting an abortion under the Casey test. Yeah. There's no question in my mind. And we never, ever got the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals to address that issue. They avoided it. Yeah, they just didn't really. They just, they, 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 the, the political agenda was so strong that they walked right up to it, took a left-hand turn, or in this case, a right-hand turn, yeah. and, and simply went around it. They didn't address it. And, and to this day, the, the undue burden uh, analysis is, is still been, not been litigated. I'm waiting for the, my next doe. I'm waiting for Karen Doe to come, come forward. Yeah. And the next, then the next complaint is going to be just like the Judy Doe complaint, except this time I'm going to put in, I'm going to write a, a brief in the complaint about undue burden and Casey and, and, you know, the, I mean, and, the, and the thing about it is that the, the rules for pleading in federal court are very, very generous. Nowhere. And I've been practicing law now for over 40 years. Okay. And this is the first time I've seen a court say, well, you had to have specifically alleged a violation of a specific case. That's that's just never happened to me. I don't think it's happened to any attorney because it's just it's just wrong. It's not the, it's not the way the it's not the way the rules work. When this case inevitably when this situation inevitably comes up again with another patient, uh, do we expect that you're the guy? I'm locked and loaded ready to go. And aside from that, like you will focus and, and include a brief on this undue burden portion. Aside from that, is there anything significantly different that no, in the way you papers, would approach? Papers are all written. Really? Yeah. No kidding. I'm just waiting for the next Karen Doe. If you're out there listening, Karen, call the Satanic Temple. This is probably a silly observation that I had, but while I was just digging through all of this, we know Missouri's official position is that the life of each human begins at conception and abortion will terminate the life of a separate, unique, living human being. And at the same time, in that same place, ending the life of another person is illegal (laughs) and called murder. How can those two things legally coexist? Uh. Because of the way that the state of Missouri framed its definition of a person, mm. okay, the one of the one of the f- linguistic flashpoints of the convergence of the culture wars over abortion has been the definition of the word person. What's a person? If a unborn fetus is a person, then an unborn fetus has the same rights as a post-birth human being. Right. Okay. They're both in the eyes of the law, a person. And one of the tacks that the uh, anti-abortion political movement took to, well, let's step, let's step back a minute. Ever, ever since Roe v. Wade, uh, the, the people who feel strongly that abortion is murder uh, have organized well, very well politically and have, pursued their agenda and their and their belief on a number of fronts, both in the courts and in the legislatures and, and in the body politic. And one of the arenas for that pursuit has been 
definition of the word person. So historically, they've they have gone to various states and tried to get states to adopt statutes that make your that make a person come into existence, legally speaking, at conception. And in fact, in the in the state of Oklahoma, they the by the the people of the state of Oklahoma went so far as to try to make that a an element of the state constitution by operation of a plebiscite. Wow! By all right, and they, and what happens is is what this, the, the 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 Roe v. Wade makes very is crystal clear that a person in the legal sense of the word does not come into existence at, at conception. So. What happened in in uh, Oklahoma was that the Oklahoma Supreme Court said, "Well, that, that may be what the people of the state of Oklahoma want, but the U.S. Supreme Court, which is the ultimate arbiter of the interpretation of the Constitution under our system of government, has said that a person is not include some the a, a fertilized egg. Okay, therefore, the constitutional provision that has been adopted is unconstitutional under the U.S. Constitution." The Missouri statute that defines person, defines person as a fertilized egg, and then carves out an exception, except to the extent otherwise provided by the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay? So murder that you're talking about is a person. The reason that the the destruction of a fertilized egg is not murder is because the U.S. Supreme Court has carved out that specific biological entity as not being a person, legally speaking, and that is under the U.S. Constitution, definition of person. Right. So we have a, certainly in Missouri, and, you know, we have a a separation between a person versus a living human being. Yeah. And, you know, and one of the, and one of the great, one of the great concerns of the, you know, it all seems like ancient history now, but, but the, uh, one of the concerns about the elevation of Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court is that there is a there is a jurist who believes in her heart and soul that a fertilized egg is a person. Yeah, that was a whole separate road I went down with the petition to remove Barrett from being able to rule on this stuff. And just so I'm clear on that one, the claim against Barrett, I guess, wasn't that she wouldn't rule fairly it was that people might view her as being unable to rule fairly? Yes. From the Eighth Circuit, we filed a petition for certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court. And while that petition was pending, uh, Barrett was confirmed. Right. And so uh, I filed the first petition for her recusal uh, the, the, literally the day after she was confirmed. And the federal statutes require a, a judge to recuse him or herself from a case where they have, I don't have the magic language at my fingertips, but essentially they, they have a conflict of interest. Right. And the question becomes the perception, the public perception of, of a conflict of interest right. because the judges are the mandarins of our culture. And one of the, uh, one of the expectations that we have of the mandarins of our culture is that they'd be impartial. We all know that we're all human beings and everybody brings to their decision-making process the sum total of their life experiences and biases, and that's just that's human nature. Yeah. Uh, but in Barrett's case, she has she's on record as calling for the overturning of Roe v. Wade and that the and that abortion is 
is murder on a on an epic scale. I believe she called it barbaric. Yeah. All right. So, you know, if so, the and so the problem that the one of the problems that the U.S. Supreme Court has is that this what is essentially is it is a religious issue and a political issue, and because neither the religious nor existing political institutions are able to come up with a workable compromise for everybody, it winds up in the lap of our arbiters, in this case, the Supreme Court. And uh, they hate it. (laughs) They they hate being put in that position. Yeah. You know, but the, the the reality is, is that they are. When an abortion case inevitably comes up one day, uh, in front of the Supreme Court, would you ever realistically expect Justice Barrett to recuse herself? No, no, I wouldn't either. <laughs> no, and 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 the and the reason why is is in my view a very sad commentary on where we have gotten because the reason why is that she is she is there. Uh, certainly on merit, and she she's a very qualified person, but she she holds that seat because of the politics. The and and no matter she's in an untenable position if she if she uh, delivers a vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, half the people in this country are going to think that she just delivered on a political deal. Right. And if she delivers on a vote that does not overturn Roe v. Wade, half the people in this country are going to say that she was reneged on a political deal. And either way, her, her credibility, her ability to act as a judge and a justice, as an arbiter in this, in our Mandarin system is compromised and her, and her, and and her intent and her credibility. That's the, that's the key point because the, because the, the court exists and has its function because it is credible, because we as citizens of the United States of America believe its word as law. Yeah. I wonder if most people are concerned more with true fairness and credibility as opposed to just having their side win. Well, next four years will tell, won't it? Yeah. I guess my last question for you despite having these rulings not go in your favor, do you think that the courts, the system generally in these cases, acted and ruled in a just, fair way? No. I think they I think they I think the decisions were politically motivated. Yeah. I would I and I, I must say I was I was personally disappointed. In the case in the case of the Eighth Circuit, I was appalled. Um I had two. I had two judges who had been Trump appointees very recently to the bench, both of whom had very well polished anti-abortion credentials, and um, it was just in uh, the you know and the they they just ignored the law. They ignored the federal rules of civil procedure to get to the result, the political result that they wanted to get to. I can only imagine the frustration, you know, as an attorney, you, you've spent so much time becoming intimately familiar with the laws and crafting these arguments in every different kind of case. And to truly believe that justice isn't being done in front of you must be just terribly frustrating. You know what? It's an ebb and flow. Okay. You win some, you lose some. 
and the the ones that you the, the ones that you lose you you learn and you you pick up yourself and you and you move on we've learned a lot and i'm not persuaded that the legal fight that i've had a very small part in is going to continue on i'd love to participate in it but you know i'm getting to the stage in my life where i'd like to just go to mexico and hang out and go to the beach and play with my grandkids yeah, <laughs> not not be so stressed out yeah yeah well James, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Uh, your insight into all this is valuable. I find it fascinating. I really do. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners about it. Great. Well, good luck in the future. And uh, perhaps when Karen Doe does come along, we'll speak again. Okay. I would like that. All right. Great. Have a good day. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. And that is all we've got for this episode, guys. Thank you so much for joining me once again. Please stay safe out there. Until next time, Hail Satan.